Welcome to Unshackled Leadership, a lantern for Black women. This program is produced to help women of color in leadership move from their zone of excellence to their zone of genius by eliminating any false upper limits caused by race, gender, culture, or their own inner critic. This program is dedicated to the legacy of Harriet Tubman, who held a lantern in the dark for all of us. I'm your host, ICF Certified Executive Leadership Coach, Joya Jefferson Nury. Welcome to the debut episode of season two of Unshackled Leadership. You know, in the last season, we only had eight shows, and that was the first season. And I want to thank all of you for supporting me during that. It was quite a wonderful learning curve, and it was fantastic to learn that our ratings continue to climb, even though we haven't had a fresh show since July 2023. So Apple reports to me that not only is our audience climbing here in the United States, but Unshackled Leadership is the number one show for business management in Ghana. So I want to thank you all for your support and your continued support. So now here in the fall of 2023, we are launching the new season that will take us into a much deeper dive into the issues facing Black women as we move from our zone of excellence to our zone of genius. So here we are in episode nine. If you've been listening to the podcast or you have been one of my clients, you know it is my opinion that the inner critic is the source of the demise of all of our dreams and wishes. The inner critic is that pesky negative voice in your head that constantly tells you what you can't accomplish. It's that perfect chorus of all of your past failures and claims to predict your futures failings, your future failings. One of the reasons I'm producing this podcast is to reach more women with the information about the chatter in their head and tools to quiet her. So that's why I'm so excited to talk to our first guest of this season, Denise Jacobs. Denise Jacobs is a renowned author and lecturer focusing on the inner critic. One of her latest books is Banish Your Inner Critic, Silence the Voice of Self-Doubt, to unleash your creativity and do your best work. What drew me to this book is how Denise draws a complete connection between your inner critic and her destructive voice and the creativity in your work and your home life. I love the specificity of that. I just loved it. So please allow me to welcome Denise Jacobs to Unshackled Leadership. Thanks for joining us. No, oh, thank you so much for having me. What a delight. I'm so and glad you're here. what an honor. I'm, I'm very honored. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You join a, a lofty group of women here in the United States, and as I said, in Ghana. And so, Ghana. yes, so I'm very happy that that's happening and that you're here. You, you say, well, let's begin here. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about self-criticism and your creativity. Okay. What specifically like like okay. Go ahead. We both know my audience probably knows cuz they keep listen to me yammer on about it. But I yammer on about it but not using the word creativity. Mm. So tell me that. So I uh used to call myself a creativity evangelist okay. because I like to say that I kind of go around spreading the good word and the gospel of about creativity and how important it is uh, for people who not only consider themselves creative, but people, everyone in general, in, in general, and that creativity in a lot of ways is kind of like a life force or this spark or this kind of livening agent that um, that everybody has access to, but so many people kind of block themselves from. Mm -hmm. And so when I really started delving into my research around creativity, which incidentally came from 
when I was writing my first book about web design and web development and I was totally black and I was having like imposter syndrome the whole time. Um, I was trying to figure out, first of all, a way that I could help myself get over all of my own self-doubts about being an author for the first time and writing a book about something that I actually did know a lot about, but somehow didn't have the external validation that I thought I needed and that I wanted. Um, and when I started delving into looking into, first of all, even knowing that there's a name for something for the inner critic, and then realizing that if you want to expand your creativity and you want to unleash your creativity, like one of the very first things that you need to do is you need to silence your inner critic. And that th this will actually potentially be interesting for folks in the audience that your brain can't come up with innovative and creative ideas when your inner critic is present. It is actually a binary type of thing. When your inner critic is present, it actually suppresses those, those uh, new generative in impulses in your brain. And when you relax your brain and you your inner critic is silent, that's when the part of your brain that comes up with great things and makes all of these connections between uh, things that you didn't have connections between before, that's when that part of the brain becomes active. Right. Um, and so... Well, before I want, to, I want to stop you there for a moment, going back to okay. the brain. Because one of the things I liked about your book was mm -hmm. that you, ex you got into brain chemistry. You know, mm -hmm. you discuss the, how the prefrontal cortex is the seed of your inner critic. Let's, let's yes. talk about that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, and that's exactly what I was and saying. And explain to the audience where the prefrontal cortex is and why it is the, the seat of the inner critic. So the prefrontal cortex is, you know, I always uh, kind of gesture kind of in the big, you know, the around front of my head. Yeah. Around the forehead. Yeah. And I usually, for some reason, on the left-hand side, I'm not sure why I, I feel like it's on the left-hand side, but um, it's probably, you know, just general area in the, yeah. in the front of your head. Yeah. But um, that is actually one of the last parts of the brain that was to develop, you know, in terms of like evolution. Um, it's one of the newest parts of the brain. And it's the part of the brain that is um, in charge of self-judgment, um, self-management, self-criticism, behavior modification, all this stuff, all the things that we need to be, quote, civilized, unquote, mm -hmm. right? The problem is, is that when that part is super active, the parts of your brain that, like I said, that come up with new ideas or making new connections with stuff, like, is actually suppressed. And so when you start to actually actively say, okay, I am actually going to reserve making judgments on stuff. I am going to reserve trying to control my behavior. You know, I'm going to let myself kind of, uh, and I hate this term so much, but think out of the box, right? Like I'm going to give myself permission to play, to explore, to see things and to reserve judgment. Mm -hmm. When you do that, your brain actually will actually start to be more creative. And I think what happens with like, and I'll just go and say, when I think when, when women are in positions of kind of power or management or leadership or whatever, then the stakes get really high. And because of that, then you're constantly aware of if you're going to make mistakes, if you have to modify your behavior, if you have to do this, all of this stuff. And I think particularly as black women, then we have the extra societal expectation right. and Race, all the stereotypes culture, and, all of, and all of that stuff. Yeah. That goes along with it. The angry black woman and the mm -hmm. this and right, uppity right. and blah, blah, blah. So... I think, you know, 
as black women and as black women in, you know, higher positions, like it makes total sense to me from a logical standpoint that an inner critic and imposter syndrome and things like that would be things that we struggle with. But I also think that that also means that we need to have tools even more so maybe than everybody else to be able to combat those so, so that we can do that, get into that zone of genius. I'm probably skipped ahead, but I can't help myself. No, 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 no. You, you haven't. You haven't. <laughs> and so, but there's so much here to unpack. Yeah. Um, I, so I do want to bring it back just a little. And so if the, I'm going to ask a question I know everybody in the audience is going to ask. If you're saying the inner critic is hardwired to the brain, what are we supposed to do? So the inner critic, so let me back up then a little bit. The inner critic comes from all of the kind of negative messaging, all of the negative things that we've heard from people in positions of authority when we were younger when we were kind of young and impressionable, things that we've seen, you know, heard from society and everything, all those kind of come together and make this amalgamation This that's like a psychological construct that's there to try to control your behavior to save you from criticism and feeling like you're endangered somehow or that, you know, saving you from being in a vulnerable place. Yeah. Right. And so and because it's like, oh, I know what's coming. You know, um, if I do this, I know that it's coming because this one time it happened. I I had that teacher that said I'm too I talk too much or I had the, the, you know, the coach that said, well, you know, you're never really going to make it as a so and so or, you know, your parents. That's just like, you know. Your brother is so much better at languages than you are. <laughs> you are, right. I know that in my in my coaching and my training, I'm working with my own coach. I've been with the same coach for 30 years. And he is magnificent. Wow. Yeah. He's magnificent. Wow. And he's, he's the reason I'm the girl I am now. Because he like, caught me and sort of shook me around. But what I've learned from him and also in other trainings and through my clients that this inner critic voice in our head starts between the ages of about eight and 13 for most of us. Some of us get it earlier. Some of us, very few of us get it later. And it's something that uh, we find, as you said, something, some, some teacher, some parent, it may not even be malice. It could be your grandmother saying, know your place. Well, she's might be mm. saying that for a certain generation. She's saying that to save your life. Exactly. Yeah. So she didn't really mean any malice, but you're, frontal prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. took hold of that and held on to it like you're saying and you keep playing that out through your whole life mm-hmm. and would you agree that it it actually starts when we're young like that eight to 13 I, I, or something like that honestly i think it's way earlier than eight mm, okay i mean i know uh i have a a, a relative older relative that I'm close to that said that um, when she was a little girl, she wanted to go and see this movie. And this was, you know, back in the forties, wanted to go and see this movie. And then something happened and the plans changed. And uh, her mother was like, well, we're not going to go see the movie. And she was very upset. She was like, you promised, you promised us that we were going to go see the movie. And her mother said to her, you're a very selfish little girl. Wow. But I'm sorry. Um, I'm a little out. girl. You just, t- you were the adult and <laughs> yeah. you said we were going to do this thing. And then I called you out and said, you said you were going to do this thing. And then I'm the selfish one. Like, yes. how, how is that? <laughs> no, but you can't process that when you're like five or six years when old. When you're you five just, or six, you yes, can't process yes, that. Yes, and then you're yes. like, I'm wrong. I'm not supposed to ask for what I want. People aren't reliable. Like there's so many, all these things, right? Right. Okay. Right. But you know what? After this, I'm just not going to ask for what I'm I want. I'm just, uh, right. I'm not going to ask gonna, for what I want because yeah, I know not, it's going to be disappointing. Or, uh, or even worse, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I remember when I was 
five, but I will mm. tell you my inner critic actually started when I was 10. But mm. when I was five, I was, you know, I'm a child of the fifties. Mm-hmm. And when I was five, I wanted to be a part of the Mickey Mouse Club, the original oh, Mickey Mouse Club with Annette and all of them. Right. Yes. Right. And so Bobby. I had, I had my ears. I, I would come home from school when they were on and put on my little pleated skirt, and my Mickey Mouse shirt. I mean, I, I was in it. I was totally in it. Come home first kindergarten, totally in it. And my parents, I told them I wanted to be a part of the Mickey Mouse Club. And my parents told me I couldn't be a part of the Mickey Mouse Club because we didn't live in California. Okay. Good enough for me. Okay. And so I tell my mother's sister, who was truly most of her life, Corella. Okay. 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 Very unhappy human being. Yeah. And I told her that the reason I couldn't be on the Mickey Mouse Club is that we don't live in California. Mm-hmm. My aunt looked at me with such disdain and she mm-hmm. said, the reason you can't be on the Mickey Mouse Club is that you are a Negro and they don't have Negroes on the Mickey Mouse Club. Mm-hmm. It, it was the first time I became aware of race. Mm-hmm. I had a limitation around race. Mm-hmm. You know, my friends in school were of every race. We mm-hmm. lived in a very integrated community. Mm-hmm. Even in the 50s, we lived mm-hmm. in a very integrated community. And all of a sudden, I started to question my value mm-hmm. against white people's value. So I go to tell my dad, and my dad goes storming to her house, screaming, don't you dare limit her. Don't you set limits. So I think that's why that wasn't my inner critic, because I watched my father beat that down. So, But it did he, happen to me at five and not between eight and 13. And he championed you. And so I think in some ways, why that didn't necessarily, uh, you know, that that probably became an inner critical voice from other sources, mm-hmm. but from her in particular you were championed. You were, you were, you had somebody who gave you an alternative version or an alternative reality. But imagine hearing that from everybody, from your father, from your mother, from your grandmother, from your right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And I didn't hear it from anything except that one aunt. Right. And then, and then, on the media and then in books and then yes. and then, 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 yes. then, which yes. again yeah. that's yeah that which is, came which came later right which came later all the rest of that comes later you know i actually have a, a similar story um that i want to share that sure. wasn't for me personally yes. but for my father so my father um um uh, was born in um 1937 mm-hmm. and he wanted to he loved airplanes he loved airplanes, fascinated by airplanes, loved, uh, you know, airplane, uh, construction kits and stuff like that. And at some point in time, I think he might've been like eight or nine or 10, maybe 11 said to, uh, he was raised by his grandmother for the most part. And one of her boyfriends, (sighs) he said to him, uh, you know what? I want to, I want to fly airplanes. I want to learn how to fly an airplane. I want to be a pilot. And this man who was my guess, great grandfather's boyfriend at the time yelled at my father was like, almost like spitting mad, you know, like the salivating, like Mm -hmm. so angry yelled at him and said, you know, they will never let a black man fly an airplane. They will never let a black man fly an airplane. Just forget about it. You will not be able to do that. Oh. Well, fast forward about, okay, let's say for the sake of argument that he was 11. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 10 years. So I think at this point in time, it's 1958. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother and my father had been dating at this point in time for like, Four year, three or four years. My father got his pilot's license and my mother was the first passenger that he took up in a small airplane. Oh, bravo for that. Yeah. And then my father actually went on to 
not just fly airplanes, but to actually build and fly experimental aircraft. And so in the course of his lifetime, he built three airplanes and flew all of, uh, actually all but the last one, um, and um, is actually in the um, Experimental Aircraft um, Hall of Fame. Oh, that's bravo to him. Bravo <laughs> to him. You're, you're very proud. The audience can't see the look on your face, but I tell you, the niece looks very proud of her daddy. <laughs> and I'm proud of your daddy. I'm proud of your daddy for overcoming that that voice that could have limited him for the rest of his life. Exactly. It seems to me he did it in spite of that. I think so, he almost did it to prove that voice wrong. That, to prove that voice wrong. And, and a lot of us don't have the strength to do that. We get crippled by it. And mm -hmm. one of the things I talk about a lot, and you talked about in the book, and I really want to get into this now, is identifying when the inner critic is talking. A lot of mm -hmm. times it talks and it sounds like good sense. Like, don't do that. Don't take that risk. Remember when you failed in high school, you know, your last two marriages didn't work. You know, how could you possibly be the CEO? So can you explain what, how you would describe in the book how you identify when she's talking? That's actually a really good question. Um, I feel like anytime you hear a voice of limitation and it almost feels like you're being reprimanded by almost like an external source. Like sometimes you hear the inner critic and you can have the presence of mind to be like, you know, that sounds like my, my aunt Maeve. Exactly. Or, or, you know what? Like, didn't like, it's a, cause one of the things I t typically like to do especially with any kind of limiting thought or limiting belief um, is to say, is to just to have a moment and just be like, is that really true? Well, that is the key question, isn't it? Right. Like, is that intrinsically inherently true? And then usually, um, you know, because I've been working kind of in the space around the inner critic for so long, um, I have, I'm of the belief, at least, that most limiting thoughts and beliefs are not yours. Are not yours. And they are, are inherited. And are not, they're, they may have been yours at age eight, but they're not yours at 48. I don't, they were never, ever yours. They were mm. given to mm -hmm. you. They were put upon I have, you. Oh, I agree. Yes. They yes. were superimposed yes. on you. Right. And then you took them on. It's like somebody came and said, here, take this. And you said, yes, I'd be happy to take this and strap it onto my back. Right. So right. I'm, I'm going to carry this load. We've been carrying this load for Lord knows how many generations. We'll just keep carrying it. Right. It's like a baton pass off in, in, uh, of burden, of, a baton of, burden, of burden, of, men, of mental burden. Off. Right. Right. Well, you add the baton passing, mm -hmm. which is a whole nother conversation. We can come back and talk about that, but then you add the thing like your father's mother's friend or whoever put on him right. black people will never and then that limits him into thinking they'll never and then all throughout your life you'll never when i'm working with clients we actually go in and find the first time that happened thank you yes love it we find the first time that happens mm -hmm. in in session one no matter what they came to me for we mm -hmm. got to find that first mm -hmm. we find when it happens and then we see where it's played out. Mm -hmm. Where else did it play out? To mm -hmm. till we get to your present age. Mm -hmm. And at what point are you going to ask the question you just raised? Is that true? Is that intrinsically true? I um, I saw, I follow this woman on Instagram. Her name is Danae Logan. And she's mm -hmm. actually a black woman, uh, kind of therapist, uh, coach uh, type. She does a lot of very deep um very deep work. And one of the things that she said, which I'm going to have to like look this up because I remember like she said, and it like really, for me, it like it really hit, which is your past is not a prophecy. That's beautiful. Your right. Past. Your past is not a prophecy. It is mm. lessons. And that's all it is. Your future is, is unknown, right? Like you forge and a future. blank slate. 
your you you forge your future, and your past is not a prophecy. And I was like, oh my god. Okay, so my next client is going to hear this. Your past is not a prophecy. Not a prophecy. And that has really helped me for all some of the things that I feel like I'm working through and getting gaining clarity on where I'm just like, right, just because it happened in the past doesn't mean that it's going to happen in the future. Right. The only reason it happens in the future is because I keep you keep carrying it forward from the past. Right, right. Exactly. 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 And so, so, I mean, I love that. And so kind of back to what you were saying about how do you recognize that voice? I feel like when you get to that voice where you can actually look at it and say, is that true? And then you can also look at it and then kind of from an objective point and say, you know what, when I was a baby, I would, I, this was not a thought of mine at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was like, not three years old. When I was three, limits. when I was two, whatever. And I was playing around and you could even, sometimes I like to um, pull up old pictures of myself as a child. Mm -hmm. Oh, and like, look at them and say, this, this baby right here was not thinking, am I good enough? <laughs> so true. You know, so this, true. you know, this kid who wanted to go and just read Dr. Seuss books wasn't thinking, I can't do so-and-so. Right. Like, when I was learning to walk, it wasn't like, if I if I mess up, that's I'll it. Never walk walk again. Again. I'll never walk again. I'll never walk. If I fall down, I'll, I'll never walk. Right? You get up and you try it again. You just yes. get up. You don't even know any better. You're just like... Ah, da, da, da. Yeah, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I feel like because of that, we... We are built, like when you were talking about hardwired, I don't think we're hardwired with the inner critic. I think that is something that develops, and like I said, is the psychological construct. I do think that we are hardwired with that kind of indomitable spirit and that spirit of exploration and that spirit of the same thing that propels us. Creativity, to, as you to, talk about. Yes. The same thing that propels us to take our first steps. That is actually what is the actual propulsion, I think, for humans. Right. I think so, too. And then I we get so all too. of these things that start standing in the way, mental things that stand in the way. But that initial bit, we have that. You, we talk about the things that stand in the way, mm. and I really love your chapter three to, or chapters three to seven, because in those chapters you take all the different levels of self criticism and self judgment, and you break each one down. You've identified them for each chapter, and you start to break it down. So I have the book here, clearly not turned to the right page yet, but I want to get there. <laughs> And so I want to go through each one of these as we break it down. Mm. Okay. Chapter three. Let me get to chapter three. And if anybody could see this book, you could see it's marked up. Oh, it's yes. dog-eared. I love it. Uh, yes. I just thoroughly enjoyed this book. I'm getting there, audience, to chapter three. I am getting there. Come on, come on, come on. We start with self-judgment. Mm -hmm. So tell me, talk to me about why that's a chapter. So actually, uh, what I will share with you is kind of how I came to these chapters. Okay, please. So I do this exercise, I've been doing it for years now, where um, when I have an audience, when I'm doing one of my keynotes or workshops, I'll have people write down their top fear around, um, you know, if I'm doing a workshop on creativity, their top fear around creativity. If I'm doing a, a workshop on collaboration, their top fear in collaboration. If I'm doing a workshop on, on leadership or something like that, what their top fear about leadership is. I'll have them write down their top fear on a piece of blank paper and then have everybody crumple up the piece of paper. And then we have an indoor snowball fight where everybody throws the paper, their paper across the room. Oh, nice. It's one. It's glorious. Every yes. single time. It, may, it's, it, it never loses its, its allure for me. 
And, um, and then, you know, once it's done, people will pick up the nearest piece of paper to themselves and they'll read it. And I do this exercise for a number of reasons. One, to just kind of have that feeling of releasing this fear of yours. Mm -hmm. But then also, uh, because it's anonymous, that people can honestly say what they're afraid of and what are the things that hold them back. And I, you know, always have people do a, a number of people share during the presentation, but then afterwards I actually gather them all up or I have the, the conference place, gather them all up and send them to me. And I go through them all and I started seeing patterns. I'm very good at recognizing patterns. I started seeing patterns. I started seeing things where people would say, people are going to laugh at what I have to say. Mm -hmm. My ideas aren't good enough. People will think I'm stupid. Like you say um, in the book called Dreading Judgment. Dreading Judgment, right. Um, things like, my ideas aren't original enough. They're not unique enough. Um, somebody will come up with a better idea, blah, 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 blah. And I started taking these and putting them into piles. And I had a very big pile of things that sounded like I'm worried about what other people th are going to mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. or think mm -hmm. or believe about me. Right. And when I did that, then I started, then I went through and I started organizing those. Okay, what were some of the commonalities? Well, some of them have to do with uh, being afraid of what people say, or some of them have to do with not being original enough, or da-da-da-da-da. And when I, when I kind of got those, then I started thinking of, okay, what are some of the things that either are underneath this? What causes this? you know, like what's the kind of psychological underpinnings of being afraid of people, of what people think or say. And then how can we, then how, and then how can we overcome those? What are some ways to overcome those? Right. Right. And so I, this whole list in the book is wonderful. One of the things I'm struck with, you know, the need to belong. Mm. And sometimes the fear of speaking up is you think you won't belong. Yep. You know, so uh, you have a quote here from Compassionate Mind Foundation, but please ex go into the need to belong. Well, I feel like that's, I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes it so scary because belonging literally means survival, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like if you don't belong to a group back in, back in the day, back in the olden times and the before times, if you didn't belong to a group, that means that you were like, you were out there and you were potential fodder for some large animal um, or, and you had to learn how to fend for yourself. <laughs> well, you go really way back. Yes. No, I'm talking about the, like the, the before, before the, times. Before the four. Yeah. Before, before the before. the four times, right? Yes. When people yes. were, you know, living in groups of like 150 people or less, right? right. If you didn't belong to the group, that meant you didn't have shelter. You didn't have food. You didn't right. have a mate. Right. You didn't have, there were a lot of things you didn't and have. you were like, subject to becoming prey. And you were subject to becoming prey. So if people, I think, developed very early on, which one of the things I found in my research, that people developed very early on ways of reading other people's faces, reading other people's body language, reading other people's energy to gauge their level of safety within a group to gauge their level of acceptance of acceptance within a group right and so yeah. when yeah. and actually uh malcolm gladwell talked about something called thin slicing which exactly is, which is mm -hmm. um you know being able to like in a you know make in a snap understand uh you know, like I said, gauge where a person's at by ex by their expressions, by their body language, by all kinds of things that we, we don't even necessarily tune into consciously. That's all subconscious. Right, right. And um, so I think that's a really big thing. And then it, certainly if you've had some kind of um, experience in the past, like, you know, kind of formative experience where you actually were judged by people where you were actually criticized by people and everything, then that only accentuates that. I have a, I had a client who was traveled around the world and didn't meet a lot of black people. 
Mm. And she was also very dark. She is also very dark complected. Mm. And so she's military brat mm. and was never chosen to be on the teams Jesus. on the schoolyards or mm-hmm. high school was never chosen to be a part of the team because of her otherness. And it has scarred her for life. Mm-hmm. She has tried very much to, it's almost like she is a, a show off for the sake of being seen and have everybody choose her. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of external stuff she does in order to be accepted. And it took forever. It took like a hammer and a chisel to break all of that down to understand as an adult, you don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you're, you're a natural part of a group by your education, by what you like, mm-hmm. what, you know, what art galleries you want to go to. You're a natural. You don't have to announce this anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't have to show it off anymore. So I totally understand what you're saying about our, our need to be a part of something and to be accepted in order to feel, in order to feel good. But I want to shift from that piece of the inner critic, because I think we have explored it really well here. I want to shift to, you have now, oh, I also want to add that I tell clients how you identify when she's talking, the inner critic, is when you don't feel powerful. Mm. When you feel limited. Yeah. When you feel like you can't fly. Mm-hmm. Then go find out what's actually going on in your head. What mm-hmm. are you actually thinking? You know, because that feeling of limitation comes first. And we tend not to stop and go, well, how come I can't build the strategic plan? Mm-hmm. And then you find it. And as we go back to your statement, you ask, is that true? 90% of the time it's not true. And if it is true, is that the only truth? Mm-hmm. I mean, do I hire a consultant? Do I go to Google? You know, there's there's no limitation unless you accept it. And you've said that in the book several times. And mm-hmm. I've said it several years. Mm-hmm. So now we got to the place of the beauty of your book, creativity. Mm. And once you can get a hold of this inner critic, wrestle her to the ground as much as you can, because once you wrestle one part, she'll come back in another way. You know, you say in the book, she's kind of crafty. And so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so once you do it, let's talk about creativity. Mm-hmm. What can abound for you in creativity? Oh, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting um, because I, one of the reasons, one of the things that drew me to this work with creativity is that I had struggled with seeing myself as a creative person my whole life. I, and I actually talk about this a little bit in the book, how in the family that I grew up in, I literally grew up in this family where people were creating and inventing and doing creative things all the time. And so for me, it was just part of how I grew up. My father literally built airplanes in the garage. And so instead of having a car or two cars in a two-car garage, there was an airplane fuselage. My mother was um, amazing. She's an amazing seamstress. And she would sew a lot of our clothes. My She'd make clothes for me and my sister and herself and sometimes my father. Um, and then she also made these like fur wall hangings and then she did macrame and she you know she just was like super crafty it could just do all this crafty stuff and then my sister was like a fine artist and you know painted and uh was just amazing with with watercolors and so you had an inner critic because of the comparison i had so and so as the youngest in the family I didn't know where my place was. And because I couldn't necessarily draw like my sister or wasn't drawn to the same kind of crafting things, couldn't really sew that well like my mother and wasn't really interested in building an airplane mm-hmm. like my father, like I didn't know where I fit. And so I did draw and I did do ceramics and I did what actually like a lot of typography, like hand done lettering and things like that because it's before computers were really out there um and realized now that like I was kind of more of like a graphic designer and then I also wrote I wrote poetry and I wrote short stories and stuff like that but it didn't seem like to have as much validity as everybody else's did so I really struggled 
with seeing myself as creative. And I kept waiting for somebody to come and basically like knight me and say, I dub thee as a creative person. And so I would make things and then I would bring it to, you know, and I'd put it in like, is it any good, you know? And oh, I'd wait yeah. for this kind of judgment Needing to be that external down. validation. Then needed the external validation because I didn't believe in myself. And, and yet I still always had this kind of desire to create stuff. I always had this kind of impetus to create things, to design things, to build stuff, to make something, to put things together in a different way. And so when I finally gave myself the validation, when I finally said, oh, I just wrote a book on web design where I wrote the book I had a theme that I wrote the book in inside of. I designed and designed visually all the websites that were the examples in the book, and I built them in HTML and CSS, and then I broke them, and then I rebuilt them, and I described how I rebuilt them in story format. I, I just want to make sure that the audience understands that your first book was about coding. It was about web design and web development. Yep. Right. Right. So then we said just the, the, the vastness of your brain. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah. So, okay. so, so the, uh, when I got to that point and I was like, I don't need anybody to tell me that I'm creative. I am. Cre I just did this thing. I didn't even think I could write a book. And I just, not only did I write a book, but I wrote a book with all of this depth and complexity. I was like, I don't need anybody else to tell me that I'm creative. That's right. And, That's right. And the feeling that I got from that validation and how it, it literally felt like in a lot of ways, Joy, I have to tell you that it felt like, I want to say it kind of felt like my soul opened up. Mm. Like mm. I literally felt energy running through my body. Yes. And it was like, it was like my soul kind of awakened and said, yes, I've been waiting for you to do this all this time. Say, like, thank God. And, and <laughs> yeah. that was, that was really the impetus for me to say, this feels so good for me that I want to help other people feel this good as well. Which I want to help banish your inner critic came to, to yeah. it, unleash your creativity mm -hmm. and, and ex embrace it and express it in whatever way that sh that is. And the first step of it is this banishing your inner critic. Exactly right. That, that feeling that you talked about for, for me, it feels like my soul is screaming. Woohoo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, we're free. You're free. And now you're, you get to a point in life where you really are in your, you really have made that move from your zone of excellence to your zone of genius, mm -hmm. because in that zone of genius comes that peace, that <sighs> self-assurance that you can, whatever you decide to do, you can go do if that's what you want to do. And you don't need Sally Jane down the street to like mm. your dress. Mm. Okay. <laughs> not not only that, but there's there's this piece of of knowing yourself, accepting yourself, and trusting yourself. Ooh. Right? Yes. That's it. And and that's that, the zone of genius. And that's the zone of genius. And there's this this freedom inside of of being in that space. There's this like freedom of movement and this freedom of, 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 of like this kind of ability and agility and kind of suppleness that comes when you are just like, like one of the things that I really love about having gotten to this point of time in my life and being a woman of a certain age. And I have to tell you that like, I would never want to be in my twenties again. 
when never, I could be never in, you know, in my forties and fifties and know who I am. Yes. The piece of it. But the thing that I love, and this is one of the things, and I'm, I'm sure you probably do this with your coaching clients as well, is confidently saying and owning what I'm good at. Yes. And instead of downplaying something and trying to like make sure that other people don't feel intimidated and this, this, and this, like, like you just said, wow, your brain. And instead of me being like, oh, you know, it's not like, I'm not, you know, I'm not that, you know, I was just like, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun. I to love leave, to, to own, accept, yeah. and you said suppleness, to be supple. Mm. In what you know and what you know well, and leave out the word but. Mm -hmm. Take but out of the vocabulary. I'm really good at this, but Mm -mm. take it out. Mm -mm. Yes. I'm really good at this, period. Or I'm really good at this and. Or I'm not good at this at all, but I will be next week. Or I'm not good at this at all, so I'm going to hire somebody who is. Who is? Why why I need to go and try to do this thing that I don't like. Exactly. That I'm not that I don't like and that I I can just subcontract that out to somebody who's who's in their zone of genius around that. Yes, exactly. Denise, this has been (laughs) oh my goodness gracious. I think this could be a four hour podcast. We could just keep talking. (laughs) We could just keep talking. But we'll pull it to an end now. But I really want you to, if you could if you had one message, if you had one closing paragraph mm. for the listeners around their inner critic, banishing it and be moving into your zone of genius creativity, what would that last paragraph, what would that paragraph be? I think it's more of a, a summation, which is to when you have those moments where your inner critic is yapping in your ear, whispering, yelling, uh, you know, put up a billboard, whatever way (laughs) he is making her position known to have that, to have that, to amp up your awareness, right. To amp up your awareness and to have that moment and be like, do I feel like you were recommending? Do I feel limited? Do I feel disempowered? Do I feel um, constrained in some way? And then to say, aha, I do. That means that this is not me. This is my inner critic. And who I am is greater and grander than my inner critic. And when I challenge her, and get to the bottom and and of what she's trying to think that she's saving me from and silence her then i can do this you know i can i have options and then that is when i can bring my creativity to bear and as we just said it could be that you end up doing it it could be that you find a a a creative way, another creative way to solve it. It could be that you get somebody else to do it. But the important thing is, is I really think is to challenge that voice and to, and then to overcome it so that you can be, so that you can really step into that place. You know, one of the things I like to say is that you can step into your power Right. And that you can start to own your power, that you can start to exercise your power and all of the wonderful things that come from that. Woohoo! <laughs> Denise, thank you so very much. Our guest today is Denise Jacobs, and she is the author of a wonderful book on the inner critic. And, you know, Denise, there's been a lot of books on the inner critic. Uh, you know, Ethan Cross, the chatter, which I think is a really good book, but didn't speak to my soul the way this one did. Mm. And so the book is called Banish Your Inner Critic, Silence the Voice of Self-Doubt to Unleash Your Creativity and Do Your Best Work. Denise Jacobs, thank you for being here. I got this book on Amazon and so can you. 
You not only can read the book, Banish Your Inner Critic, but you can go to LinkedIn Learning and click Denise Jacobs and watch her course on the inner critic and how we all can banish it. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. So this was debut show number nine of our second season. I'm really happy that you have joined us here. And if you enjoyed this particular program, I want to hope you tune in for the rest of the season. Because during the season, we're going to examine a whole set of things that will help you move from your zone of excellence to your zone of genius. Our next program is going to be about why Black women need to have a coach. It's not just your good girlfriends talking to you, why you need a professional coach to help you move into your zone of genius because your professional coach is going to ask questions that your girlfriends may not know to ask you. You need to get a coach. And many of you for the show after that, many of you are looking to leave your job and become an entrepreneur or you're already an entrepreneur and you can't put your hand on money because the banking system is rigged against us. In our, so it'd be, we're nine now, 10, 11, episode 11 is going to be how you can get money from a bank. There's a sister who has specialized in doing this, in finding money from a bank for you or helping you find your angel benefactor. So that's just a sampling of what we're going to do this season. I hope you will come back and thank you for joining us here on Unshackled Leadership, a lantern for Black women. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Unshackled Leadership, a lantern for Black women. I hope you were inspired to make a change in your life. I want to acknowledge the outstanding work of my sound engineer, Chris Downing, of Dream Life Media Group, graphic designer, Dominica Eldridge of Unique Creatives, and Victoria Cook of Next Level Marketing. Our theme music is called Morning Thoughts, it is composed and performed by Hotham of HothamMusic.com, and we found it on SoundCloud. I'm Joya Jefferson-Nuri. I hope you will join me again. <laughs>